So this morning, in our study through uh, the book of Romans, we're doing things a little bit different. If you like singing, you notice our singing was a little shorter up in the front with uh, our worship time. So I'm, we're trying to leave some space. Sorry, I'm falling over. I don't know what that's about. We're trying to leave some space at the end of the message uh, to respond to what we're going to hear this morning. The reason for this is, as I read through and as I studied our passage for today, and it's Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, as I read through these verses again and again, I was overcome uh, with the sin and unrighteousness that I was saved from, that I was personally saved from. I was overcome not just with the actual sin that I was saved from, the sins that I have done, but with the potential sins that I was saved from, sins that I could have done. I was overcome with gratitude that God saved me from reaching my full potential as a sinner. That God saved me from becoming everything that these verses we're going to read this morning describe. So let me read Romans 3, 9-18. through 18. And it's my prayer that each one of us will, in these verses, see, see afresh what God has saved you what God has saved you from Romans 3:9 what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks God seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you might read that and you might say, bummer, that does not sound good. Now in this passage... We're coming near the end. It's actually sort of the crescendo, the conclusion. Paul's going to have a footnote in the next two verses, and we'll talk about that next week. But we're coming to the the, the conclusion of Paul's argument demonstrating the unrighteousness of humanity. He began in in chapter 1, verse 18, where he writes this terrible truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul began by saying that that God's wrath, uh, His severe, uh, angry judgment will come upon all who are ungodly and unrighteous. And then from Romans 1.19 all the way to 3 Chapter 3, verse 20, he demonstrates how all people, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are unrighteous before God. And therefore, how all people uh, are subject to, will receive, without intervention, the wrath of God. Paul's purpose is to show our great need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just prior to beginning this this section about showing the unrighteousness of humanity, Paul summarizes the gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, 
the righteous shall live by faith. It's through the gospel that God's righteousness is seen. It's actually through Jesus Christ that God's righteousness is revealed. It's through the gospel that those who believe, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, will be made righteous before God. Through the gospel, those who are unrighteous become righteous and therefore can be saved from the wrath of God. Now, as we look at our passage for today, what we find is the conclusion of Paul's argument for the unrighteousness of everyone, of humanity. He's shown the unrighteousness of both Gentiles and Jews. And he's dealt with the fact that even though the Jews are God's chosen covenant people, even though they were given the law, even though they were given the sign of circumcision, even though they've been given many advantages, including and especially the Word of God, that they too will be judged for their sin and their unrighteousness. And so Paul begins this final uh, section, this conclusion, with the universal indictment, the, the formal accusation against humanity. Now as we look at these verses that we've just read, Let me remind you that Paul is talking about the condition of humanity without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, the indictment that that, that we read and that we're going to walk through is universal. It describes the default unrighteousness, the default unrighteous nature of all humanity, every one of us. But for those who believe the gospel... For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and received the righteousness of God, this indictment no longer applies. Because there's power in the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Power to transform our default unrighteous nature to a new righteous nature. Power to save us not only from God's wrath, but from reaching the full potential of our unrighteousness. So what that means for those of us, and I think that's most of us this morning, who've trusted in Christ, for those who've been made righteous by the power of the gospel, what that means is that as we look at this indictment, is we're not looking at who we are. We're not looking at who we are in Christ. We're looking at who we once were without Christ. We're looking at who we would become without Christ. We're looking at who Jesus Christ saves us from becoming. And therefore, as we walk through these verses, uh, we can rejoice that God, through Jesus Christ, has provided the way of escape from this universal indictment. And Paul begins the indictment with a question. Verse 9, what then? Or maybe, maybe I should say it right. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Based on what Paul has just said based on what we've been studying based on the fact that the jews have advantages specifically the word of god but that they too will be judged for their unrighteousness what then what's up with that are the jews any better off are we jews any better off paul says paul says we he includes himself as a jew are we the jews any better off than gentile sinners and the answer is no because all are under sin No, not at all, for for we have already charged what we've been looking at for this past 10 plus weeks, Romans 1.18 to to today, what's already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Yes, the Jews have advantages, but ultimately, 
on the final day, they're no better off than the Greeks and the Gentiles. Why? Because all will be judged based on the same standard. The Jews will not escape judgment because they're physical descendants of Abraham. They too will be judged because of their sin. The terrible truth for all humanity is that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now this is the first time in this letter that Paul uses that phrase, under sin. So what does it mean? Well, the language is meant to to put a picture in our minds. Sin is above humanity. Humanity is below. We're under sin. Uh, We're under the power of sin. And this doesn't mean that, that we sin occasionally. It means that sin is in control of who we are. Control of what we do. Sin is over us. Sin is our master. We, all people, are enslaved to sin. Jesus says it in, in John 8.34, we're slaves to sin. Paul will say it later in Romans 6.20, we're slaves to sin. Now let me be clear. It's not that sin makes us do what we don't want to do. But it makes us want to do what we shouldn't do. We're not innocent victims of sin. We who are enslaved to sin are partners with sin against God. Now this truth from God's Word, that we're humanity, we're all under sin, under the power of sin, is not, uh, is not popular. This is not a truth that our world wants to hear. But it's a truth that we, uh, the people of God, the church, has to, has to proclaim. That all people, even though we were created in God's image, that we are under the power of sin. We were corrupted by sin. We are born into slavery to sin. This stands in direct opposition to the popular notion that all people are basically good. That it's only because of our environment or our upbringing, our, our terrible parents, our socioeconomic status, that we do what's wrong. If we could somehow just construct a just society, then sin would be no more, or at least would be much less. But the origin of sin is not an unjust world. The origin of sin is the human heart that then creates an unjust world. The Bible teaches that we are morally bad, sinful by nature. We don't just do sins, we are sinful. From the time of the fall, from from the first sin in the garden to present day, humanity has been under the power of sin. David makes this clear about himself and it applies to us all. uh, Psalm chapter 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. We, all people, all humanity, come into the world under the power of sin. And therefore, the second part of the indictment follows. First, we're under sin, all are under sin, and second, all are unrighteous. Starting in verse 10, all the way to verse 18, Paul provides evidence uh, for the fact that all people are under the power of sin. And the evidence comes from the Old Testament Scriptures. He begins verse 10, as it is written, then he quotes from a number of Old Testament passages, he sort of pieces it together in what, in what we read this morning. We don't have time to look at the Old Testament passage this morning. We're going to just focus on Paul's quotations of them. Now, the first thing Paul does is give a summary statement of the result of being under sin. This is a further indictment of humanity. He says, as it is written, 
None is righteous. No, not one. That word righteous means to be upright and just and virtuous, to keep the commandments of God, to do what is right. And Paul is saying that no one is this. No one is righteous. No one does this. No one who's ever lived is righteous. He wants to make sure, he wants to be very clear on this point. Uh, None is righteous, not even one. No exception to the rule. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. Picture any person who's ever lived, besides Jesus Christ, and we'll get to that. And you can say of that person, he or she is not righteous. Without Christ, no one is righteous. The Buddha, the Gandhi, the Pope, Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. Because of our sin, because we are under the power of sin, we are all unrighteous. This is the very point Paul has been making since he began in verse 18. That both Gentiles and Jews, all people, are unrighteous and therefore subject to the wrath of God. God's wrath will be revealed. It will be experienced by all who are ungodly and unrighteous. And now he makes that clear. No one is righteous. You and I, all people, are unrighteous. Therefore, all people will be subject to the wrath of God. Now, my inclination is to stop here. Okay, that's, an, that's heavy. I'm sweating. Just jump right to the gospel. You know, we talked about at the beginning, we need to go there. We need to get this. I'm, I'm tired of the unrighteousness already. The gospel is the only hope for unrighteous humanity to escape our unrighteousness, to escape the wrath of God. But we need to sit here for a moment. We need to sit in our sin, in our unrighteousness for a time. We need to marinate in the fact that without the gospel of Jesus Christ... Our future would hold nothing but but greater and greater sin, followed by the wrath of God. We need to experience, we need to feel the great need that we have for salvation. We need to come to terms with what we've been saved from. And Paul provides that. He continues to quote the Old Testament. He continues to provide biblical evidence for humanity's unrighteousness. He shows the, the universal impact of sin. The truth about humanity is that we are under sin, therefore we're unrighteous. And our sin and unrighteousness impacts our lives. This isn't a theory. This isn't a a, a class in a theoretical whatever, theoretical theology. This is real life. This is what we see. This is what we live out. And what we find in verses 11 through 18 is a description of what an unrighteous, sinful life looks like. Let's walk through these verses together. Verse 11. No one understands. First part of verse 11. What, what don't we understand? We don't understand the things of God. We don't understand the, the truth of who God is and what He's done. Remember Romans 1.21. Speaking of those who reject God, Paul wrote, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or, or as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The ultimate sin, the ultimate act of unrighteousness is the rejection of God. To not honor and glorify and thank God. 
And in so doing, when God is rejected, the result is a foolish, a darkened heart and mind, a heart that doesn't, a heart that can't understand the things of God, the natural things, uh, the, 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 the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, Paul writes to the Corinthians. And therefore, as verse 11 continues, he writes, no one seeks for God. No one understands God, no one seeks for God. We need to understand uh, the devastating impact of being under the power of sin, of being unrighteous. Sin destroys our desire to understand and seek and to know God. God created us to be in relationship with Him, to walk with Him, to be in fellowship with Him. This should be our default uh, condition, the default condition of humanity. We should desire to understand and know and seek more and more of God. We should long for a relationship with our Creator. But because of sin, our relationship with God has been been short-circuited. Fellowship with God has been broken. And instead of seeking God, we seek everything but God. This is really pictured in the garden, isn't it? After the first sin, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They run and they hide. They hide from God. Humanity seeks to escape from a holy God. We seek to follow our own sinful, unrighteous ways. In verse 12, Paul continues, all have turned aside. All have turned aside from God, turned away from God. All have rejected and replaced God. All are following their own sinful, unrighteous paths. And because of that, together they have become worthless. When we turn away from God, When we reject God, no matter what we do with our lives, the Bible says it's worthless. It has no lasting value. It may have value uh, in the short term here on earth, but for those who reject God, their life has no lasting worth. Uh, C.T. Studd, missionary to China and Africa, wrote, Only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. You could be the greatest humanitarian of all times. You could give your time and money and effort for some great cause, for many great causes. But unless you're seeking the glory and honor of Christ, of God, your life will ultimately be worthless, valueless. And verse 12 concludes with these crushing words, No one does good, not even one. Really? Is that right? What are you saying there, Paul? What do you mean? No one does good, not even one. How, how can you say that? Why do you lump everyone together like that? Certainly this applies to some. I mean, to them. But not all. It can't be that not even one person does good. You must be exaggerating for effect. You know, there's hyperbole here. I mean, I know people who don't understand the things of God, who don't seek or know God, Yes, they've turned aside from God, but they're good, honest, nice people. They treat others decently. They give a buck or two to that homeless guy in the corner. They don't steal. Never killed anyone. They don't lie much. They don't swear often. They give to some charities of their liking. They work hard. They provide for their family. They care for their pets. And some even make sacrifices for what they believe will be the betterment of humanity. These are good people, right? 
They've done some good things, right? Paul says wrong. You see, the point is, for those who've removed God from their life, who don't understand His ways, who don't seek Him, who turn from Him, the point is they're missing the whole purpose for their existence. They, we, all humanity was created to walk with, to be in fellowship with, to glorify God. That is good. And by rejecting Him, they're showing that they're under the power of sin. They're revealing their unrighteousness. All their their so-called good deeds are flowing from an unrighteous, sinful heart. You see, that's the reason why Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Because God is the most important person in all the universe. And violating the greatest commandment, rejecting God, not seeking Him, not loving Him, not glorifying Him, is the worst of all sins. And therefore, for those who who do not seek God, who turn aside from Him and His ways, nothing they do will ever be considered worthy or good or lasting. You see, the problem is, we look around us, and we see people doing things uh, that we believe from our perspective, are good. Good deeds. Even sacrificial deeds. But our standards of goodness are not the basis for which things are called good. It's God's Word that declares no one does good, not even one. And it's God who will judge, not ultimately based on an externally seemingly good act, but based on our hearts, our motives, why we do what we do. The great uh, preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, told a story which gets to the heart of this. Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. He decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. When he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, Here, my son. I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It's yours. The gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard of this incident and thought, if that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give me if I were to give him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, You expect me to give you as I did the gardener. I will not. You're very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you're giving yourself the horse. The farmer's deed was good because it was done out of love for his prince, for his sovereign, for his king. The nobleman's deed was not good because it was done out of selfish love for himself. It's not the act itself that defines its goodness. It's the heart behind the act. It's who we're serving and loving in our hearts that matters, not how we're serving with our hands. And it's only God who knows a man's heart. And it's only God who can say, no one does good, not even one. You know, that says to me that without Christ... Those who are under the power of sin cannot and do not perform any truly good deed. For everything they do flows from an unrighteous, sinful heart. 
Paul continues, verses 13 and 14. In these two verses, he strings together three quotations from the Old Testament. All three focus on the, the sins of the tongue, the mouth, what we say. Their throat is an open grave. What they say, what comes out of their mouth brings, brings death. And it's, and it's like it's this picture of there's death inside them and it's coming out. They use their tongues to deceive. They speak lies meant to manipulate others into getting what they want. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their speech is filled with poison. It brings death. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That word full means that their, their evil speech is not a rare occurrence, but it happens all the time. The sins of the tongue are part of the way they live. The tongue is meant to bring uh, blessings and praise and honor to God. But sin has corrupted our hearts, and instead of blessings, our, our tongues bring forth deadly poison, cursings and deceit and bitterness. Then in verse 15 to 17, Paul shifts from what we say to what we do. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. This is the devastating external results of being under sin, of being unrighteous. This is the result of a world where God is not sought or known or loved. And this is what we see throughout human history. There can be no doubt. This is what we see in our world today, murder and war, destruction and ruin and misery an inability for any length of time to maintain peace. In a, a 2003 New York Times article, the author wrote, over the past 3,400 years of recorded history, there have been entirely, uh, uh, there have been 268 years of peace, or 8% of recorded history. Why war and ruin and murder and destruction and misery dominate our world, and our history because humanity is under the power of sin. Now just to be clear, the Bible is not saying, and I'm not saying, that every person does every one of these things that we've listed. Everyone is not physically shed the blood of another. Everyone is not continually cursing others or, or using their tongue solely for deceit. Everyone does not commit every sin. But humanity has done all of these sins and more And I believe it's only because of God's restraining hand and and our fear of punishment, maybe from our government, that we have not destroyed ourselves over and over many times. Paul then concludes his description of what it looks like to be under sin with one final Old Testament quotation. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He began by saying, no one seeks God, and he ends by saying, no one fears God. The ultimate sin, the ultimate impact of sin is the the removal, the rejection of God from our lives. We don't want God, and therefore we don't seek Him, and we don't fear Him. We don't believe that God will judge our sin. We don't believe that the wrath of God will be revealed against all unrighteousness. In fact, we don't believe in God, especially the God of the Bible. We construct our own gods. We do not fear God, and therefore we continue in our sinful ways. We continue to reject, to rebel against Him. We sin with our tongue and our hands and our feet, proving that we are under the power of sin. So that's Paul's concluding summary of unrighteous humanity. It's a done deal. We are all unrighteous. So if you've been with us for the last ten weeks, 
and you don't get it yet, I have nothing to offer you. (laughs) Maybe read it again. Go to the tape. Go to the website. Now, we could stop here, but I want us to remember Paul's purpose for writing these true yet harsh words. I want us to leave with the universal invitation of the gospel. Now, all we've seen about humanity is true. Over these past ten weeks, summarized today, we're all sinful, unrighteous, destined to receive the wrath of God. And that is uh, really bad news, right? But thanks be to God, there is good news. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And starting in Romans 3.21, just a couple verses down, Paul will plunge into uh, just a magnificent description of the gospel. And I want to share uh, with you one final verse that I pray will move your hearts, will move your minds. One final verse that kept coming up as I was reading this. There was this verse lingering in the back of my mind over and over as I prepared this message. One final verse that God can use to cause those who've never trusted in Christ to turn to Him. One final verse that God can cause those who have trusted in Christ to rejoice and honor and worship Him like never before. This verse is just a a little over a chapter away. Probably most of you have even heard it. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Paul, in the same letter that he details our incredible sin and unrighteousness, nothing good in us, he writes this, uh, these, this amazing gospel words. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about all we've said about the natural state of humanity. We, were, we are sinful and unrighteous people, slaves to sin. We've turned from God. We don't seek God. We don't fear God. We are worthless. We have no ability to do good. The words we say and the things we do ultimately bring death and destruction and ruin and misery. But God. But God. I love those words. They're my favorite words in the Bible. But God. They're the words that signal something is about to change. Something new is a-coming. But God shows His love for us. God demonstrates His love, not because we loved Him. Remember, who we, we just got the picture of who we are, who we were. Not because we loved Him or sought Him or did good things for Him. God shows His love because God is love. God always acts first. You might wonder, if Paul is right, if Paul is right, you might even wonder sometimes when we sing that song that we sing, uh, uh, why did you choose? I, I did not choose you. It could never be. Because, well, how does that work? If Paul is right, if, if Chad is right when we sing that song and no one seeks for God, how does anyone ever become a Christian? Don't we have to come to God? Don't we have to seek Him out? Don't we have to become seekers? Isn't that what we call people? Seekers? And the answer is, Because God seeks us first. I know I said one final verse, but let me give you one more. In John chapter 6, 44, Jesus said emphatically, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. One more verse. 
Jesus said in Luke 19.10, it's not, it's not up there. Jesus said, he came, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. No one seeks God unless God the Father draws him, unless Christ seeks him out. But God shows his love for us. God seeks us in that while we were still sinners. God comes to us and he, he I, you know, it's, it's a mystery. He does a work in our heart and, and he, he changes that, uh, our desire and, and we become what we call seekers because God has sought us first. He loves us while we are st- sinners. Isn't, that some, isn't there something amazing and comforting about someone who knows all of your flaws, who knows every wrong you've ever done, who remembers your wrongs better than you do, who knows your deepest, darkest thoughts and sins, and still says, I love you. And he doesn't just say it. He acts it. He puts it into action. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You get the picture? While we were in rebellion, while we were enemies against God, while we were turning from Him, while we were not seeking Him, not understanding Him, while there was no good in us, God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. Jesus then lived a perfect life. Jesus did the opposite of everything we've just read. Jesus always sought God. Jesus always feared God. Jesus always did what was right and good. Jesus lived a sin-free, a righteous life. And then Jesus went to the cross in our place. Sinless Jesus took on the massive sin of humanity. He took on your sin. He took on my sin. He took on our punishment. He took on the wrath of God for our sin upon Himself. Christ died for us, for the unrighteous. For those who are under the power of sin, that's the heart of the gospel. And for those who've never trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're here today, I I want you to know that there is a a universal, uh, even continual invitation to come to Christ, no matter who you are, no matter what sins you've committed. I mean, we just described the worst of the worst. And then Paul's going to say, and then there's the gospel. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Christ invites you to come to Him, to trust in Him, and receive the righteousness of God to be covered by the blood of Christ, by given, being given the righteousness of God, to no longer be enslaved to sin, to no longer live under the power of sin, to be free to escape the wrath of God and to receive His eternal uh, grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And I would exhort you, I would, I would call you, I would challenge you to take that step of faith today because the, the key to opening that door to relationship with God, if He's seeking you, if He's drawing you out, if He's drawing you to Himself, is to take that step of faith today, to trust in Him, to give your life to Christ, to give your life to the one who died for your sins, to trust in Him, to turn from your sin, as we talked about last week, and turn to God to repent and trust in Christ. You can do that now, today, even where you sit. You don't have to get up. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't even have to say a prayer. You just believe in your heart. Now, for those of us who've done that, 
for those of us who's given our lives to Christ, I would exhort you, I would call you, I would challenge you to think about and to rejoice uh, again and again in all that He saved you from. Worship Him and honor Him. Seek to glorify the One who died for you. And go from this place today with a renewed sense of His great love for you. He knows everything about you and He still loves you. A renewed commitment to using your life for His purposes. He calls you and He'll empower you. A renewed passion to overcome the sin that, is, that, that He has taken you out from under. The picture, you're under sin. Sin is here, you're under it. And He takes you out from under it. So that you can have a renewed purpose to live a righteous life. A life for Him. A good life. By the power of Jesus Christ. By the power of His Spirit living in you. But before we leave this place, we need to respond, I think, corporately to all God through Christ has done for us. We need to respond in thanksgiving and worship. The worship team is going to come forward and, and help us with that. But, but before they do that, I would ask that, that, you would, that we would all just stand at this moment. I'm, I'm, I'm just about finished. So. And if there are those of, of you out there who would like to express in prayer your thanksgiving and your gratitude for Christ, for His taking you out from under the power of sin, I would just ask, a few people, just to do that out loud, to pray out loud, to verbalize the gratitude and worship that God has saved you. I would invite you to do that this morning. So, so right now, I'm going to uh, just give us a time of, of silence where people can pray out loud. So it's not going to be silence if people are praying. But I'm going to shut up and, and let you pray and thank God.